Hey everybody, we're back with episode 17 of Original Versus Cover with DJ Crystal Clear and Dr. Paul Bertolino. All right! <laughs> we're here... <laughs> <laughs> We're here in the world-famous As It Should Be Studios in Crooklyn, New York, where it is 75 degrees with 99% humidity. It's basically a steam bath outside. And oh, it is merely 75. It feels so much hotter, but feel, I guess that's the humidity. The real feel is 800 Kelvin. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, we're back after a little hiatus because the world got crazy. But uh, we're back! So, my first song for episode 17 is called Downtown Train. And the original was done by a Mr. Tom Waits, his album Rain Dogs, 1985. And uh, I have a cover version. Uh, See? Yes, that stuck out of the corner of my eye. Um, The cover version is by Rod Stewart from his album The Best of Rod Stewart in 1989. Now, there was another cover version that I thought would have been interesting, but it was not interesting, and it was by Everything But The Girl. Oh, well, that's the very definition of not interesting. So I spared you that. Um, if you want to listen to it on your own, I dare you, number one. And number two, I dare you to not jump out of the nearest window after you listen to it. Sorry, Everything But The Girl, you but lose. Anything but that version. Anything but that version, please. So the original, it's Tom Waits. Do I have to say anything else? It's Tom Waits. Uh, There's a loud guitar, his crazy gravelly voice, melancholy lyrics. Uh, I feel as though this is probably the most melodic he had gotten in his career at that time. Because most of his stuff previously was weirdo spoken word <laughs> shit. To Singapore, you know, like a pirate's life for me. <laughs> Banging on bottles and you know blowing through PVC pipe or whatever. It was all weird. But here he actually sang a song. Sang a song. And I think this is why Rain Dogs was such a gigantic hit, because people who had never heard of Tom Waits before ran out and bought that album. And I think primarily because of this song. And it was on MTV. And uh, it was a big hit on MTV as well. But this was huge, huge, huge hit. Because before that, where did I see him? Did I see him at CBGB's or something? I saw him at some weird little club somewhere. Once in Philadelphia, once here in New York. And it was like 15 people in there. And he's like... Rawr, 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 well, yeah, it was his know. earlier incarnation. His... Yeah. Uh, his Fernwood Tonight his period. <laughs> Fernwood Tonight. His weirdo spoken word stuff. Um, and I also... Well, okay, so yeah, this was the hit. And there were kooky songs on this album. One of them, the B-side to this hit song, was called Tango Till They're Sore. <laughs> I, I'll just leave that there. Um, but I will also say that when this came out, a handful of people thought that it was Bruce Springsteen. Right? That's, you know, there are crazier things to think. But I think the more I, I think about it, it could have been, it sounds like a song that he could have written and yeah. could have sung. Like it. Well, it is kind of his uh, formula because Bruce has the, the gravelly voice, but he does write songs and he does have melodies and he has yes. hooks. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, it was... Yeah, it's very Springsteen-y. So then there's the cover 
by Rod Stewart. It was 1989. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, it was Rod Stewart in 1989. Um, the production is so 1989. Mm, I think that's all I need to say about it. <laughs> uh, he sings mostly in his higher register. And, uh, you know, Rod has a little gravelly voice, too, but not uh, like the likes of Tom Waits. And to me, I feel as though he was trying to elevate the lyrics or elevate this song in his weird way. Yeah. With the production. Uh, I keep wanting to say this is the one he did with Jeff Beck, but no, it's the Impressions cover. Impression. Yeah, 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 yeah. People get ready. Yeah. <laughs> Which is on my list for a future episode. So now we're going to listen to both of these and, uh, and pick a winner. And uh, I don't think that that's going to be too hard. <clears throat> All right, so here's the original Tom Waits. Outside another yellow moon There's ponds to hold in the nighttime, yes I climb to the window and down to the street I'm shining like a new dime The downtown trends of food For those Brooklyn girls Try so hard to break out of the little worlds. Now you wave your hand and the scattered like clothes. They have nothing that will ever capture your heart. They're just thorns without the rose. Be careful of them in the dark. Oh, if I was one. Obviously, uh, yeah, Tom Waits wins. Maybe Springsteen Maybe wins Maybe Springsteen this. wins. I think you're right, yes. Springsteen wins, even though he's mad that he didn't write the song <laughs> and record it. I feel as though I've seen him sing it in concert, though. Am I wrong about that? I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't seen any evidence of it, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he has... He'll do anything. I mean, when Malcolm Young died... 
he he did Highwood Hell live. He was on the, he was doing shows at that time. He was on tour, and there's video on YouTube of Springsteen doing Highway Highway to Hell. Hell. Oh shit! I didn't see that. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I feel as though I've seen him sing that live. I, I could be wrong. I have to, who should we ask? We got to ask Jeff Gordon or somebody. <clears throat> Big Springsteen people. All right. Song number two. It's called "Get It On," bang a gong. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul, but every time I think of T-Rex, I automatically think of you, and you know why. <laughs> so, the original is done by uh, T-Rex from Electric Warrior from 1971. And um, the cover, there are a bunch of covers of this, but the one I'm going to focus on was done by Power Station. Not the Power Station, but Power Station in 1985. There is a ministry cover that I could have tortured you with, but I decided not to. Because I feel that this is punishment enough. <laughs> all right, so we all know the song Get It On, Bang A Gong. It's one of his many kooky, nonsensical, sexy nursery rhyme songs. It chugs along at a lazy pace. The chorus repeated 80 zillion times. Guitars, drums, a low ooh under the main lyric, um, blaring sax, and a shrill vocal in the chorus. Courtesy of Flo Netty. That's what I was getting to. Ah. So, while being here in New York in March of 71, <clears throat> Bolin asked drummer Bill Legend to help him brainstorm drum patterns for a song idea that would later become Get It On. Uh, Bolin claimed to have written the song out of his desire to record Chuck Berry's Little Queenie and said that the riff was taken from the Berry tune. In fact, a slightly edited line, and meanwhile I'm still thinking, which is from Little Queenie is set at the fade out of Get It On. And according to producer Tony Visconti, this line was an unscripted ad lib by Bolin during recording. Uh, this was the song that virtually ended the once solid relationship between Bolin and John Peel. After Peel made a clear <laughs> made clear his lack of enthusiasm for it on the air after playing his advanced white label copy. <laughs> Bolin and Peel only spoke once more before the former's death in 1977. Um, the track was recorded at Trident Studios in London. And the piano on the record, do you know about this? It was either recorded by Rick Wakeman or Blue Weaver. Oh, no, I don't know about that. I was waiting for you to say, oh, Elton John. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a video of Elton John playing yes, it with him, yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark Patris notes that both pianists may have played separate parts on the song, with Wakeman contributing only the piano glissandos that feature several times throughout the song. Wakeman, who was desperate for work at the time to pay his rent, had bumped into Bolin in Oxford Street, who offered in the session. Wakeman pointed out to Tony Visconti that the record did not actually need a piano player, and Tony suggested that he could just add a gliss. Wakeman said that Tony could do that, to which Bolin replied, You want your rent, don't you? Wakeman did and earned nine pounds for his efforts. Wow, boy, that's that's six months rent right there. Right? <laughs> and the saxophones were played by Ian McDonald of King Crimson. Mm. It makes sense. I mean, this is a total prog rock song. Completely. Um, producer Visconti later recalled, he played all the saxes, one baritone and two altos. I kept the baritone separate, but bounced the altos to one track. I bounced the backup vocals to two tracks, making an interesting stereo image. And, as you said, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, formerly of the Turtles, provided backup vocals. 
um, and during a December 1971 Top of the Pops performance, Elton John mimed a piano on the song. This performance is usually the video clip for the song, which has aired on various music video outlets, such as VH1 Classic, which I wonder if that even still exists. Yeah, if it, was it was it VH1? I mean, yeah, I definitely remember seeing it a lot in the 80s and 90s. It was probably on MTV a bit, and I remember I would watch it and go, "What is that, is that Elton John? Is that... That's Elton John. Is that Elton John? John? That is Elton John. Is that Elton John? Yeah, it was weird. The way that it was shot and everything, yeah, it was very strange. But I, and then I was like, did he play piano on this? I wasn't sure. Because it could have been a distinct possibility because they were all friends. All right. And the uh, the cover by Power Station, it was an English-American 1980s, 1990s rock supergroup. I hate that word, supergroup, formed here in New York City and in London in 1984. It was made up of singer Robert Palmer, former chic drummer Tony Thompson, and Duran Duran members John Taylor on bass and Andy Taylor on guitar. Remember, people, they were not related. Uh, Bernard Edwards of Chic was involved in the studio side as recording producer and for a short time function as the power station's manager. I didn't know that at first. Edwards also replaced John Taylor on bass for the recording of the band's second album. The band was formed in New York City in late 1984 during a break in Duran Duran's schedule that became a lengthy hiatus. The power station was named after the power station recording studio, duh, where their first album was conceived and recorded. Now, Robert Palmer... He's a son of a bitch, that Robert Palmer. Uh, when he heard that the other Power Station members had recorded demos of the song, he asked to try out vocals for it, and before long, the band decided to record the entire album with him. The single, along with Some Like It Hot, became the Power Station's signature songs. Uh, on July 13th in 1985, the Power Station and Duran Duran played Live Aid in Philadelphia. And uh, the band performed the song, but with Michael DeBar. <laughs> right, the C-lister, yeah. Michael DeBar. Which I was like, why is Michael DeBar singing this song? Um, <clears throat> the song was also performed live on the Miami Vice episode, Whatever Works, with Michael DeBar on vocals, where the uh, then-touring group had cameos. Now, the group's unexpected success led to two incompetent incompatible results. First, they decided to headline a summer tour in America with Paul Young, Nick Kershaw, The Bongos, and OMD. Second, Robert Palmer decided to record a studio album to take advantage of his sudden name recognition. This led to Palmer's departure from the band. So as Tony Thompson, Andy Taylor, and Bernard Edwards, they all contributed to Palmer's 1985 album Riptide, which was a big hit. When Palmer bailed on the tour, some critics referred to it as unprofessional behavior. In Number One magazine, he hit back at the claims he joined the band for money. Firstly, I didn't need the money, and secondly, the cash was a long time coming. It wasn't exactly an experience that set me up for retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Palmer was also accused of ripping off the power station sound for his own records. Well, he had the band backing him up. He snapped, listen, I gave the power station that sound. They took it from me, not the other way around. And sad news in 1996, Edward Edwards retired to his hotel room where he was later found dead by Rogers. The medical examiner determined the cause of his death was pneumonia. Three days before his 49th birthday, 
Thompson died on November 12th in 2003 in Los Angeles, within a month of being diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer. And that was after he had survived a car accident that had almost killed him (laughs) earlier in the 80s. And two months after the death of Power Station bandmate Robert Palmer died of a heart attack. I remember them dying back to back. So the moral of that story is supergroups usually stink and you might be jinxed. So we're going to listen to these and then pick a winner. T-Rex, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't mind that song. I, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not a fan of T-Rex, and I have a lot of complaints about Mark Boland and his overall, you know, yeah. steez there. But, uh, you know, there, there are songs here and there that I like. I mean, I don't, I don't hate them slash him, and I don't dislike every song. Yeah. Well, I have to say that nobody wins here <laughs> oh that's not a favorite t-rex song either. i yeah i don't i don't like that song um and th- th- this is all your fault basically because of the discussion that we had a long time ago about t-rex because that's all i can think about is the nursery rhyme sing songy you know repeat the chorus 89 million times which he does all the time and this one in particular I just I don't like the way that it's recorded, and the chorus specifically, because it's like get it on, bang on, get it on, bang on, well, on top of each other. You can barely hear anything other than the the high pitched vocals. Yeah, and it kind of gives me a headache. And as much as I love me some Robert Palmer, and I love the Duran Duran guys, and Tony Thompson and Bernard Edwards, I love that whole crew, but it just. It's just kind of like, why? I don't know. It's not good. It's not that good. You know, I kind of liked the, at the time, I kind of liked the Power Station cover of that song. Yeah. Which, yeah. I think it was something that I I secretly liked. I didn't buy it or anything, but, you know, 
Well, you didn't have to because it was on TV every yeah. five fucking seconds. Um, mm, 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 I, mm, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Robert Palmer's Palmer's vocal. That it's great because he's Robert Palmer. Right. <laughs> and then to replace that with Michael DeBar. DeBar. So weird. Yeah, I, I don't get that either. And for the you kids out there who are not familiar with Robert Palmer outside of this record, you need to get on it and buy his old records. I mean, Sneaking Sally Through the Alley is one of the greatest songs ever. I could listen to that song a hundred times in a row. It's so fucking good. And uh, I even like stuff off of Riptide. That song itself is kind of cute. Yeah, Robert Palmer rules. That's all I have to say about that. All right, song number three is called I Only Want to Be With You. And the original was done by Dusty Springfield from her album Stay a While slash I Only Want to Be With You, (laughs) (laughs) which was recorded in 1964. And I have two covers, Bay City Rollers from their album Dedication in 1974, and Nicolette Larson. Wow! From All Dressed Up and Nowhere to Go in 1982. So people who are listening to this episode, go back to episode 16 because we did some Nicolette Larson on there too. So the original, it is totally 1964. It's upbeat bubblegummy pop that's fresh and snappy peppy. It's a cutie pie love song. The horns, the driving rhythm section with guitar, strums, and a full horn section. The standard echoing backing vocals. It's perfect to shimmy shake to. And Dusty's vocal is soaring as high as the strings during the bridge. I love that Dusty Springfield. Now the covers. Bay City Rollers. Everybody knows that. If you're well, everybody who grew up in the 70s, 70s did. That's definitely something I think that hasn't escaped that time. That time. And you know, before I started... Uh, added the song to the episode. I have a very distinct memory of the Bay City Rollers version of this. And then when I listened to it, it was the polar opposite of what I remembered. Hmm. For some reason, I remembered like a harder rocking vibe like Saturday Night to this song. And then I listened to it and it's, you know, it opens with the drums that lays down the beat with the bass thumping and then the guitar and the vocals... And then I was like, this is kind of like a lame boy band. Yeah. Well, that's well, what they are. Well, it was basically rollers. That's what they were. But, uh, like, they were trying to make it a smidge harder than Dusty Springfield, but it didn't really work. I don't know. I remember it being much harder. I don't know what I was thinking. And then the Nicolette Larson cover is really corny. Does it? Does not. I haven't heard that version, but, man... That does not sound like it would be anything remotely good. It is not good. It's too many hand claps. It's very 50s sounding, believe it or not. I don't even know why she wants to make it sound like the 50s, but uh, yeah, it's weird. And uh, there was a third version I could have tortured everyone with, which was by Samantha Fox in 1988, but I'll spare everybody. (laughs) All right, so we'll listen to these and then pick a winner.
So I believe that Dusty Springfield wins here. Oh, God, yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I liked the Bay City Bowlers somewhat. And I remember that version. I remember hearing that I would hear both versions. I would hear their version, but I would also hear the Dusty Springfield version. And uh, I don't think I even knew which one was the original. Oh, um, there yeah. were just these two different versions, you know. Right. Well, kind of like Pinball Wizard. I think you know. I knew the Elton John version, but you would also hear uh, the Who version, of course. But then there was a Rod Stewart version, right. and so there were just certain songs that there just seemed to be a bunch of versions floating around. Yeah. Of and you would hear all of them. Yes, and at the same time, super confusing. Yeah, it's weird. Um, did you ever have that album? I think it was four records, all this in World War II. I, I know about it. I don't think I ever had one. Because somehow I got one of those. And I feel like I was in high school or something when I had it, junior high or high school. And it was the weirdest thing I had ever seen and experienced. Like all these top rock acts doing all these songs it was just so strange like what it's from a movie right and it was just like what is this it was really weird isn't that the album that maybe i'm confusing it but isn't that the album there's a justin hayward song on it uh forever autumn or something like that i think so yeah it's it's really weird um but it's in a box and i think it's a four record set all this in World War Two, like the graphic, it's like a weird '70s looking thing with a soldier, with the, with the helmet. Yeah, it's very weird. Sidebar on that. Okay, so song number four is called "Brand New Cadillac," and the original was done by Vince Taylor and his Playboys in 1959, and the cover I chose is. <laughs> The only cover that matters, because it was done by the only band that matters... The Beatles. <laughs> the Clash. <laughs> it's from London Calling in 1979. Okay, so the original, it is 1959, all right. The rhythm sounds like the precursor to the Batman TV show theme. There's an opening guitar and a bass lick that sets the pace for the whole song, along with some piano flourishes and some rockin' drums. It is a rockabilly classic. I hear that song, any kind of rockabilly thing I've ever been to, they always play this song. And then sometimes, to be extra cool, they will play the cat, the Clash cover. So that was on their third album, London Calling, and it was the first song to be recorded on the album. The band cites the song as one of the first British rock and roll records and had initially used it as a warm-up song before recording. They play it a little slower so that you can do the twist without throwing your back out. And it's the same arrangement, just louder guitar, guitars, and Joe Strummer is yelling. That's pretty much it. So. <laughs> Sounds blockbusting. <laughs> so, uh, here is the original Vince Taylor and his Playboys. Come on, 
what they did. <laughs> Amazing, right? The Clash, they're so ahead of their time. <sighs> All right, so uh, who wins? I mean, the original all the way, of course. Yeah. Now, is that purely out of your hatred for the Clash, or if you really uh, don't? You know, uh, te- technically, it's a no-win because I'm I don't really, I'm not really care about that track to begin anyway, with. Yeah. But you know, if I've got to hand a trophy to somebody, <laughs> it damn sure ain't going to be George. It's Stone not going to be the Clash. Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing. I, I heard the Clash cover first before I heard the original. And uh, I just thought, this sounds like some dopey 50 song that they wrote. And then I heard the original, and I was like, this is some dopey 50 song that they didn't write. So to me, once again, nobody wins, because I really am not fond of the song myself. And it's like, eh, you know, whatever. But somebody asked me to do this song on the show. Now I can't remember who it was. I have to remember and find out and yell at them. All right, song number five is They Don't Know About Us. And the original was done by Kirsty McCall from her album They Don't Know, which, or sorry, 7-inch single from 1979. And the cover was done by the amazing Tracy Ullman from her album You Broke My Heart in 17 Places in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> so the original which was recorded in Stiff Records' mobile studio, The China Shop, in the spring of 1979. Kirsty McCall's original recording of They Don't Know emphasized layered harmonies in which McCall turns her own voice into a chorus of overdubbed parts, an evocation of a long-standing admiration for the Beach Boys. Uh, engendered at age seven by hearing her brother's copy of The Good Vibration single. She fell in love with that, and that's all she wanted to do. Uh, McCall's quote, I played it so much, he just said, have it. And I played it incessantly for about 12 hours a day, working out all the different parts and harmonies in my head. Um, so I remember when this came out, and I thought, this was on Stiff Records? Why is this on Stiff Records? It seemed very strange. Now, she was in a band that was on Stiff. Because it's worth a fuck. Because it's worth the fuck. She was in a band that was on Stiff called the the Drug Addicts, the Addicts, the something, because they spelled it funny. So that's why she was already on uh, Stiff. But, uh, you know, it was 1979, and it's a very 50s-sounding song. Right. Which we've talked about before, how these things come back around, what, 30 years later or whatever. Right. Well, also... Punk bands and and yes. the sort of pseudo punk bands were into the fifties stuff. Yes, that is true. Like the Clash, uh, new wave bands, the Pretenders, they were into fifties stuff. Um, yeah, everybody did like a fifty sounding something or other. Prince did fifty sounding shit. Everybody did. Uh, so the recording of that original to me is very rough. I mean, a mobile studio, you know, out in the street of London somewhere. Demo-ish. A demo, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I could completely hear Annette Funicello singing that song, which takes me to the cover by Tracy Ullman, who sounds like Annette Funicello singing that song. She made it sound like it was recorded in 1956, 
her her vocal and it's just the the arrangement it's like like glockenspiel and bells and all this crazy shit totally 50s and the video again uh, do you remember the video oh i remember well yeah um you know she's it's a 50s thing and dressed up and she's got the mod glam look thing on and then whatever and then who cameoed at the end Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, <laughs> who looked like he was 12 in that video. Yeah. I watched it last night. I was like, damn, what was he, like 22? Yeah, that was what? That was 83, was 84, 83. right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, well, the, the video of that, for that song, for the Tracy Ullman version of that song, reminds me of, uh, what was the... What was the John, the big John Waters film of that, the, the one that was mainstream? Hairspray. That, it's yeah. It yeah. just looks like it looks like that. It does. It's totally hairspray looking. Yeah, it's great. And but I have the distinct feeling that that was her real bedroom, though. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, uh, there's if you look closely during some shots where, like, the mirror is in front of her, but she's looking to the camera and the reflections, like you could see stuff, and it was like, oh, that's like her dirty underwear. Yeah. <laughs> interesting so uh we'll listen to both of these and then pick a winner So now that we've listened to both, what do you think, Paul? I am by far, by leaps and bounds, giving that to Tracy Ullman. I fucking love that. I love her version of that song. I've always loved it. It's so good. Yeah. It's so great. But, you know, uh, uh, Kirsten McCall is actually on that record because she does the... Yes. Because Tracy Ullman is a great singer, but she couldn't, couldn't hit that, that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really love the Tracy Ullman cover, too, for the same reasons. I like the original because of its roughness and demo-y thing and kind of throwaway vibe, but Tracy Ullman just knocks it out of the park, hands down. She's so great. Yeah, and then she had, she had another good single from that album, Breakaway. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Dan, no, 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 no. How does it go? Now I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting now. It's like I'm I'm trying to name check yeah. the song and then I can't even sing <laughs> oh, it. I can't dun, remember. Break away. Yeah, it was good. Check out that album, kids, because that's a it's a good record. All right, my last song of episode seventeen is "Got My Mind Set on You." The original <laughs> was done by James Ray with Hutch Davy Orchestra and Chorus. It was a seven-inch single done in 1962. And the only cover I know of is by George Harrison from his album Cloud Nine in 1987. Now, the original, it's a straight-up rumba beat right out of the gate with the... The sound, the percussion sounds, horns, the snappy drums, bongos, all this other crazy shit. But then it changes. So the second verse, it gets into like a clip-cloppy country kind of thing. And then the last chorus, the backing vocals are totally operatic. And then the last verse, there's a banjo playing in the lead. So it's like four things jammed into one song, which is very, very strange. They should have just kept with the rumba beat. Um, and James Ray, who's singing it, he sounds, at first I thought he was a black guy, because he sounded sort of black to me. I don't know why. But uh, I don't think that he, pictures I've seen, I don't think that he is. Because he was kind of funky-ish, but not totally. It's, it's a very weird song. So the cover, uh, the first time Harrison heard the song was during a visit to his sister here in the States in 1963, five months before the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan Show. His sister lived in the countryside of Illinois. Why did his sister live in the countryside of Illinois? You know, she, Does she marry somebody and moved out there? Probably, I think something like that. That's but so yeah, weird. she was married. Yeah, that's weird. Um, while there, Harrison visited record shops and bought a variety of albums. One was James Ray's 1962 album that had the song on it. And he began recording the song at his Friar Park home studio with, guess who, Jeff Lynn producing and playing bass and keyboards, Jim Keltner on the drums, Jim Horn on the sax, and Ray Cooper on percussion. Who else? Who else? And because Jeff produced it, you know what it sounds like, right? It sounds like a fucking ELO record with George Harrison singing lead. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like... Tom Petty Full Moon Fever with yes. George Harrison on vocals. Right. It sounds like The Move with uh, George Harrison singing on it. So, uh, of Harrison's three number number one singles here in the United States, it was both the only song not written or composed by Harrison himself. Not only was it the last U.S. number one hit by him, but as of 2019 the last from any of the ex-Beatles in the United States when the song hit number one. It broke a three-way tie between Harrison, Lennon, and Ringo Starr, all of whom had two number one singles as solo artists, and that's discounting Paul McCartney's work with Wings. Well, yeah, McCartney wins that battle with with ease. with ease. Um, It also happened to be the number one single in the U.S. the week immediately preceding the induction of the Beatles into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame making Harrison one of the few inductees to have an active single on the U.S. record charts at the time of induction. Billboard ranked the song as number three for 1988. Did you... You did 1988 for your show, right? 
No, I, d- I, d- I think I only have three or four albums listed for that year, one of which is Cloud Nine. <laughs> Cloud Nine is one of only two great George Harrison albums. It actually is a really good George album. It is really good. All Things Must Pass and Cloud Nine are the only two I like as whole oh, albums. Yeah, hands down. They're both great. Wow, okay. All right, so now we're going to listen to these and then <laughs> pick a winner. <laughs> say George Harrison. What do you say, Paul? I say oh. nobody. Oh. I fucking hate, <laughs> hate that <this> song. song. <laughs> hate that song. I was just talking about how much I like the Cloud Nine album, but <laughs> the one bad mark on that thing is this shit. Yeah. I, I always fucking hated that. I, I, that's inexplicably everybody loves that thing. I hate it. I can't stand it. I will say... That if I had a gun to my head, I would pick George Harrison. But I, too, hate this song. It's just, it's the dumbest thing ever. And that stupid video, that well, there was... There were two or three versions of it, too. The, I'm talking about the one where everything is moving and jumping around, because it was... And ins- he's sitting in a chair. It was inspired by um, that horror movie, uh, Evil Dead, I read somewhere where things are, like, flying around and all that dumb shit. But it was just the dumbest thing. And then and then hearing Jeff Lynne all over the backing vocals, you know, yeah, it's not a good song. It stinks. Yeah, it's a terrible song. Yeah, so nobody wins. Everybody loses there. That, that is that is lose-lose. <laughs> it's big-time lose-lose. 
All right. And with that uh, great loss, we will end episode 17. Um, so, yeah, learned a lot. Um, had a lot of overlap with these two episodes, 16 and 17. And, um, you know, it's good to be back in production. It's good to be back here at uh, As It Should Be Studios. It's been months, 121 some days, over 121 days. <laughs> It's been a long time. It's been a long fucking time. But we have the Bee Gees looking down on us now, so... Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're in uh, episode 18. I have one of their songs, or one of them involved in it somehow. So, that's it. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope that you had a good time and learned something. And uh, we'll see you next time for episode 18. Happy motoring! Happy motoring!